this is the Gartner Sales Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Gartner Sales Podcast, where we interview the best thinkers in sales and revenue, from the amazing researchers and leaders across Gartner to the standout practitioners outside Gartner. Our main objective is to understand the strategy, people, process, technology, and tactics that drive growth in today's hyper-competitive business environment. All of this while we're ensuring that we're delivering practical tips and the most up-to-date strategic insights you'll need to drive revenue more effectively. My name's Craig Rosenberg. I'm a distinguished vice president in the Gartner for Sales Leaders practice, and I will be your host today. My guest, our distinguished guest, we'll use the word distinguished today, is Dale Chang. Dale is an operating partner at Scale Venture Partners, which um, he'll talk about for a little bit for us in a second. In his role, Dale is a resource for guidance on evolving go-to-market strategies, as well as providing best practices and benchmarks across the portfolio. So you can see why we invited him here today. Dale, welcome. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, I was thinking before we started, if there was anything I missed on you, and then if you wanted to tell us a little bit about scale um, before we got started to just give the, our audience a full understanding of you and and what you know what you do on a day to day basis. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first a little bit about scale, because this might help set a little bit of context for our conversation. But we're an early stage venture capital firm. And we focus on investing in intelligent business software. So think about things that a uh, business would buy, whether you're a line of business, um, line of business leader, CMO, CRO, CFO, or uh, on the infrastructure side, VP of IT, CTO, head of engineering. And when we invest in these companies, we couple that and provide this scaling platform, this team that helps companies like Bill.com, JFrog, WalkMe go from that founder-led growth and when we invest the company's typically only about a million dollars and help them to build up this go-to-market machine and provide that advisory that gets them from one to a hundred million dollar plus in revenue. So I'm you know, as an operating partner at scale, I along with my team, we lead these scaling efforts. And prior to joining Scale about eight years ago, has actually uh, led the cloud and SaaS practice for uh, a sales strategy consulting firm. So in other words, uh, you've seen Everything. (laughs) I wouldn't say everything, but I think that our portfolio, we have a concentrated portfolio across enterprise software companies. And so with 50 some odd portfolio companies, plus several, um, you know, alumni companies, as well as the background in strategy consulting, you know, we have access to, you know, hundreds of companies. Uh, You know, one of the things that we've actually built up as well is, um, this idea of software development within a venture firm. And so I think that our team here actually looks pretty different than what you might expect from an operating function at a venture capital firm in that, yeah, we have our typical marketing and community and networks and advisory functions. But one area that we've really invested is in actually software development and largely aimed at this platform called Scale Studio. Um, which is our platform for the analysis of data and signals from software startups that helps them key in numerically on how the company is performing or planning to perform. 
Oh, that's great. So the audience can see why you're here, why, why you're here today. And I'm really excited to hear more about, you know, your point of view on, you know, the, you know, go to market is the game here that we're trying to learn from. And the first question um, that we really ask all of our guests is we're trying to figure out, you know, what, you know, in, from what you've seen, you know, what are the biggest strategic levers that organizations can pull or CROs or, you know, executive leadership can pull that drive the highest, the biggest lift scale or growth? You know, what are those big levers that need to be pulled? Yeah. You know, I think even before we get, and these are, this is, these are the types of questions that we answer and we help advise our portfolio companies all the time. And one of the key frameworks that we use to, even before we can answer that question is just to get to a health assessment of the business, right? And so we have this framework that we use internally that simplifies that, you know, I think if you Google today, you know, SaaS metrics, the first thousand pages that you get each has a different opinion on what are the SaaS metrics that you should be reporting. And what we've done is we've tried to compile that into an easy to digest framework that simplifies that dizzying array of metrics that are out there. And, you know, Craig, you and I chatted about this before, but you know that, you know, I was just in the ER for a kid's sports injury the other day. But so I got to see a lot of this firsthand. But in the hospital setting, there are these things called four vital signs that they use to initially triage a patient. So temperature, pulse, respiratory rate and blood pressure. And sure, they look at other things after that, like, does your kid have all their teeth present? But these are the four vital signs that the doctor and the care team really cares about. Uh, to start taking a look at. And similarly here, internally at scale, both when we're doing diligence as well as when we're advising companies, we are looking across a set of four vital signs that are critical to understand around growth, efficiency, churn, and burn. And by looking at those four categories of metrics, it gives us the ability to quickly hone in on one, how that business is actually doing and two, where we might be able to zone in next. Got it. So I think that one of the ways that we've done that, and I'll you know, dive a little bit deeper into, you know, I think that growth is probably the primary metric that a lot of people look at today is helping people understand the question is of how much growth, like how, what does good growth actually look like? And I think that you probably know the T2D3 um, or triple, triple, double, double, double for software startups, right? And the concept behind that was to hit unicorn status or for those that don't know, billion dollar valuation in five years, is that after you hit 2 million in ARR, there's the expectation that you would triple in the next two years to go from you know two to six, six to 18, and then double for the next three years to go to 36, 72, and 144. And then that puts you on track to, into that IPO candidacy. But you know, I think that it just goes to show how quickly things actually change because you know, if a company is growing at that pace and they end up at 144 million in five years, I'm pretty confident that even in today's market, their billion dollar valuation would come far earlier than 144 million in revenue. But the part that hasn't been talked about much is just the actual trajectory of companies and how that has changed over time. You know, I think that one of the pieces of advice that we've given our portfolio companies over the past couple of years as we've been locked in our homes for COVID has been that the growth trajectory for companies has actually changed dramatically. And so, you know, I was sitting on my couch, doom scrolling like I often do on Twitter um, and came across this po- this tweet by Gokul uh, Rajaram saying that he thought that 5x was a new 3x. 
Um, so companies that were the best in class companies were no longer just tripling, they were quintupling. And as you would expect from, you know, typical Twitter conversations, op opinions varied. Um, so we went deep within the data, you know, cut growth rate by year and lo and behold, he was right. I mean, we started to take a look at thousands of data points and starting in 2015 into 2019, things were holding pretty steady at that triple being like kind of that gold standard top decile growth rate for, for million to $2 million companies. But what we found was that starting in 2020, we were seeing that these companies were no longer, the top decile companies were no longer tripling, but the top decile companies were actually growing at 5x. They're 5xing their size in that first year. 5xing in the first year, so from 2 to 10? Yeah, I mean, it depends on where their starting point is, but I think that it's generally like a 1 to 5, uh, 1 to 5, 1 to 6 uh, is kind of top decile growth today, which is tremendous growth. Um, as you can imagine, for someone who the year before was probably calling friends and family and saying, hey, I've got this new software product. Do you want to be a design partner? Can you trial this? And by the way, sign a contract so I can go get future uh, VC funding. They're going from that to building out a go-to-market machine um, that can take them from one to five, one to six in that first year. Certainly, there are other companies that have grown faster than that. But this represents across the entire software spectrum, top decile growth um, for that for that size band. Interesting. I think all the sort of uh, vital signs that you mentioned are interesting. I don't know if like from an overview perspective, if there's any insights around efficiency and churn and burn that uh, we could talk about uh, before digging into the growth side. Yeah. You know, and I think that efficiency is a very it is a yin to the yang of growth, right? Because one, every single board meeting that we sit in, the question always comes up, if we grow this much and we spend this much to get there in terms of burn, is that creating value, destroying value, or a net neutral? And I think that what we have found through our research and you know, one of the metrics that we've come up with, this is capital efficiency metric, is measuring just that. How much ARR, annualized recurring revenue, are you generating versus how much cash have you burned in that same period? And what's interesting to see is that as a company gets bigger, that capital efficiency ratio tends to improve over time, meaning that the smallest companies, you know, the, the median, the pooled average for like a one to two and a half million dollar companies means that for every dollar that they spend uh, or that they burn, they're only generating about 40 cents in net new ARR. But once you get to you know that 50 to $100 million stage, every dollar that they're burning, they're actually generating $1.40 in net new ARR, meaning that they're starting to get to the point where that, that SaaS flywheel, that recurring revenue flywheel is working, and they can invest and invest and invest and continue to grow the business. When we couple that with the growth metric, you know, I'm a consultant by trade. So everyone loves, every consultant loves a two by two matrix. And I think that what you end up finding was that those that are the most highly valued today, the highly valued companies today are going to be those that are one growing faster than the median, you know, maybe even top decile, but then also on the efficiency ratio perspective, the capital efficiency ratio perspective, able to generate more ARR than they are spending in cash. Excellent. So I'm just trying to figure out is the when you look at a company and you look at the ones that have the growth and the efficiency numbers, 
Are there commonalities in what they're doing that we can learn from? Yeah, I don't want to come off only as presenting the data because the data helps us validate what we are seeing as the fundamentals of other aspects of the business that are super important. So I would say we still very much consider the market, the size of the market, and whether or not it is greenfield or replacement, whether it's a replacement market, what does the size look like? What is the team and people composition look like? Does this team actually have the ability to execute on you know, the vision that they've set out in front of them? And is the product at a place where we believe that they can actually win in the market? Because there is a, especially in the SaaS world, especially in the software world, there is a winner take most mentality. I think if you look at you know examples in the CRM space, you have Salesforce and the number two is, I don't know, like there's uh, the vast amount of value that is being created is being captured by the number one winner. And when we invest and when we're working with our companies, we are going for that number one position in every instance. Is there anything we can learn about how, how their sales are, stru- you know, in, in certainly in early stage or if, as, I mean, do you see that? I mean, is it primarily product and market or like, is there, are there execution factors that, that we could take from, you know, across the entire life, you know, whether it's demand plus revenue, plus, you know, plus sales or whatever that might look like. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And so what we've seen recently is that those companies that have been able to go from, to surpass that 3X growth benchmark into that 5X world are those that have been able to experiment early and run concurrently multiple go-to-market motions. I think what has traditionally been the rule of thumb or you know best practice has been early stage, go with a single go-to-market motion and continue to work that and refine that until you've perfected it and can scale it until you add, and then you add the next one. But what we're finding is that our fastest growing companies, have actually created a world and a go-to-market motion where they can actually drive multiple go-to-market motions, whether they have a product-led growth as the core, and then they may have a channel or distribution partnership to build out you know, that next layer of growth. But they're doing all of that concurrently. And what that requires is that they have a marketing organization that is in tune with the way that the, the way that customers want to buy. The sales team that is in tune with the way that marketing is actually messaging and positioning the product for each one of those different go-to-market motions and a customer success team or a partner success team that can help support the different ways that the customers are coming into the company. Interesting. So you have seen that uh, messaging continuity uh, between marketing and sales is one of the keys to their to the early stage success. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was actually just chatting with um, one of our portfolio companies up in Seattle, Esper, and they've done, you know, exactly that. Very developer oriented product led growth at the core, which probably accounted for 300, you know, call it 300% growth year on year. And then the balance of that was made up of indirect sales, partnerships, business development build ins into the broader ecosystem of their customer network. And they couldn't do that on their own just through a sales motion. It also required marketing to align their messaging. And so the way that they've actually structured their team 
is even for an early stage startup, having folks that are focused on that PLG led motion and that PLG led marketing and call it sales light motion, as well as having another team that is focused on that indirect sales motion. How do you communicate your value, which is different when you're communicating to someone who is engineering to build your product into theirs versus someone, a developer who is taking that product and trying to spread it within their own organization. Yeah, really interesting. You just made me think of something that I, I think I've always known this and I think I've said things akin to this, but the other day, a, a colleague of mine, sort of my generation, uh, you know, been around for a while. Our generation. <laughs> yeah. You know, with product led as like, you know, one of the lead go to market strategies in the growth world today. Are we looking at new revenue leaders and new sales leaders? Is there is because we always said there was going to be a new revenue leader. Right. But what I found is we always went back to the pot of the old enterprise software leaders. Right. And that, you know, over the last couple of years, we said, oh, this, you know, the way we used to do things is dead. And then we'd go hire someone from, you name it, you know, mature company that's been around for a long time. But like now, uh, like, for example, you said you gave me an example of go to market, you know, multiple go to market strategies. And you said, well, they're predominant as product led. And then maybe they have, you know, the, a channel distribution strategy early on, that's a different type of leader and different type of leader early on. So you tell us about that. What, what, what are the skills or experience or types or, you know, what are the things that we should be looking for or we should be building towards if we want to be a revenue leader at the, today's new startups? Uh, you know, what does that look like? Yeah, I think that today's, because there are so many more go-to-market motions and even tech-enabled go-to-market motions today than there were, you know, when I was an SDR, gosh, 25 years ago, um, the, the level of sophistication of today's CRO is significantly higher than um, that when I was in sales. I mean, I think that today's CRO is much more versed and attuned to not only the traditional kind of call it enterprise sales model, but also just meeting that customer the way that they can and want to buy. Um, and that may be that you have a product-led growth model to kind of seed. And you know, I've seen this before at several of my past clients. You have a product-led growth model to seed the usage base and try to increase spread and popularity and usage of the product, and then eventually end up rolling that up through your enterprise sales motion. And that actually includes product as well, because product needs to be able to get to a point where they can tell the sales team, hey, this customer is looking as though they are prime and ripe for some type of feature upgrade that would require a consolidation of licenses. And so having a sales leader who is attuned to that and be able to coordinate with not only the product team, but also the marketing team and the customer success team is critical. And that's different than what, you know, what a VP of sales looked like, you know, years and years ago. Sometimes what we're also seeing today is that all of that ends up being rolled up into, you know, the, the marketing and sales function ends up getting rolled up into a single into a single role for all customer facing interactions. Okay. So you are seeing where marketing and sales is rolling up into a single role. 
Yeah, I think that that ends up, it ends up when there is a tighter connect. So I'll say I see it both ways. I think that there certainly are traditional roles where there are there's a CMO and a CRO and a division between marketing the product and selling and even retaining the customer. However, I am also seeing an increase in marketing and sales being much more tightly aligned, especially in this product-led growth model, because what you need is to have that connection between user self-service and the user being able to use and spread spread usage of the product within their own organization. But then that sales team needs to be attuned to how they can continue to increase usage or increase um, distribution of that product or service within that customer base. Yeah. So the tightly aligned, you know, I'm going to take that and then I'm going to add, you know, you mentioned how, so we have these multiple go-to-market strategies. Uh, we're aligning on messaging. We're aligning on the customer, you know, as you described it, the metrics, what they're doing, not doing all these things. And then CS has to be able to, um, you know, be built for the flexibility of, you know, how the buyer has bought what, you know, what sort of buying track that they've gone through. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've certainly hoped for over the years, but I feel like we're finally in a moment is, you know, fundamentally viewing the business end to end and, uh, you know, having, you know, building for managing and optimizing against the entire life cycle versus siloed, like hellaciously siloed um, functions. Um, and you're describing basically organizations being built from the ground up, viewing the business end to end. And and really, you know, I, I just felt like you were talking about these layers on top of each other, like where they were, you know, I like it's incredible that you're talking about aligning on messaging. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, it sounds crazy, but that did surprise me in a good way. I was like, okay. You know, and then you were talking about product led. There's like, there's a real, that's like the ultimate and sort of partnership between marketing and sales. So it sounds like you're describing what, you know, where we hope all, you know, all of business on the B2B side is looking end to end. And, and what you're saying is look like these great companies are building themselves from the ground up to look at the business end to end. A hundred percent. Cause I think that as you start, as as there's company formation happening and you start transitioning away from that founder-led sale where they're, you know, again, calling buddies and, you know, their, their own network into passing that go-to-market motion to a team, that really is the way that people should be going to market, I think, especially today when there is such tight coupling between what the product actually does and what product is getting built and what customers are actually wanting. Um, that tight feedback loop between product, marketing, sales, success is going to be, I think, critical for you know, sustained growth versus you know, what you described as like palatial, palatial fiefdoms where marketing is its own thing and not necessarily connecting directly into the sales organization. I mean, I think about the fact that like people are still having arguments as to where SDR should live, whether it's in marketing or if it's in sales. I holistically view this as what does my entire funnel look like from when someone hears and knows about the brand of the company and the product of what it does, all the way through to being a customer and how they continue to buy more from us. 
that is one continuous cycle and how that feeds into product and how that feeds into marketing and sales. There should be as little friction there um, as possible. And setting up your org from the start to be that way will save you a lot of headache later on. Yeah. So well, I'm going to take that for a sec. And then all the things you talked about on the product-led side, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing on the enterprise and on the main street level, so think outside of tech, is that, you know, main street B2B companies looking to launch SaaS products and in some case, product-led products. So you're looking at mature companies with years of, you know, uh, carrying a bag selling. Well, SaaS is still you know, a lot of carry in the bag um, and, and launching into these new areas and that transition. It, it, I'm just wondering if there's anything from your world, right, where you're helping people build these things from the ground up that we could tell them as they try to launch this. I mean, you talk about concurrent go to market strategies. This would be a completely new one. So a lot of new sort of software, right, that, the, you know, a company that's traditionally not thought of as a software company is launching. Um, and trying to think of it in a recurring motion versus not. Um, any any element, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm not sure it's a totally fair question, but, you know, from the th- other things that you've learned that, you know, they, they would need to either watch out for as they build that or uh, they should make sure, like, are in place as they build that. I mean, I think we've heard a little bit here on the, you know, the, the big point of view, which is end to end, but like any, anything else? I generally think that understanding, and I think that one of the mantras that has gone through, especially the start, startup ecosystem, is getting very clear as to the ICP and the problem that you are trying to s- solve for them. And what pain can you take away from their world? And what that means is not only the problem that you're trying to solve, but sometimes it's even like, how does this customer want to buy because if it turns out that this customer like you're selling something on a you know fr- that that generally will come from a capital expense budget but they can they can't do that without jumping through tons of hoops but what they can do is like everyone can charge their credit card for this maybe that's the way that you and that could be something way different than what you're doing today but that might be what you need to do to meet your modern customer, the way that they want to buy. And that's just a single example. But there are other things that, you know, you may want to think about in terms of how do you restructure your internal sales team, at least with initial steps to get tighter alignment between the sales org and um, the marketing org and the product marketing org. I mean, I know that, you know, for some of our larger companies that didn't build we're not built this way. Like they have essentially tied together small groups of, you know, and it's kind of an honor for the salesperson to be on this panel is like this integration of like a sales, a couple of salespeople that link in and a couple of customer success people that link in with the marketing leadership just to make sure that they are what they are saying and what they're hearing from the market all ties together. And it's kind of an honor. People will give this out on sometimes on a quarterly basis that they'll say, hey, you know, the top three salespeople or we'll hand select people that will be part of this, you know, sales sales council um, can help provide feedback uh, to the marketing team uh, because the sales team is the one that hears it from the customer firsthand. 
marketing pushes the messages out there. And yes, they can to some degree measure through lead generations or brand attribution, brand awareness as to how things are landing. But from a one-on-one customer conversation perspective, your salespeople will have the best uh, point of view on that. Hmm. That's great. See, now that's something they could do right away. And I'm not sure they do. So I, you know what I mean? And it, that's like, that's not like you got to boil the ocean. Now that's something great. And I love that. I do agree that that I, the reps that are, if you allow reps to either earn it or chosen, they will, they, they they'll, they'll, honor, I mean, they'll be honored. Um, and that, you know, with the time we have left, I did want to sort of piggyback on that one thing that we're also hearing you know, uh, from our customers across like all industries, all sizes has been two. There's two parts of the question. They're not necessarily the same, but I'm going to throw them both on the table because, uh, you know, you can choose to sort of, you know, weave it in however you want. But one is, you know, we talked about had the CRO change, but like how, is is the modern sales rep, you know, what, what's different about them from two years ago, five years ago, or will be different about them in the next couple of years? But also, you know, I don't know if your companies are seeing this, but definitely like attrition and being able to keep um, sales reps um, uh, has been a challenge. And um, I would say like a major challenge. So anyway, I, I, I know those two are things aren't perfectly aligned, but I throw them both on the table and just let you sort of riff from there. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the first one with regards to what a modern salesperson actually looks like, the modern salesperson looks different than, again, 20, 25 years ago in that a couple of ways. One is just the access to data and intelligence around and signals that a company may or may not want to be contacted and be ready for your solution at that point. I think that there's a tremendous amount of data that a, a modern sales rep can and needs to ingest before they can come to the conversation. One, identify whether or not it's a viable prospect, but two, even just coming to the conversation with a very informed point of view about how what they are selling can help solve a problem for the person that is on the phone or that is on that uh, video conference or that is on or is in that room with them. There's so much that you can find out about the company in and of itself, as well as any signals and any you know type of data sources that you can pull in to help inform that conversation. That type of research, pre-research, just does wonders in terms of advancing that conversation, either qualifying or disqualifying a candidate so that you're a prospect so that you're not spending and wasting time. I think secondly, what is becoming more apparent is that the sales process has largely changed from what used to be a fairly linear buying process of what was like call it bant qualification into now something which is where people are inventing things and creating software that people don't even know that they need today um but you're creating a use case and you're trying to find that angle and that wedge in. So being able to be a better storyteller, you know, I know that you talked with um, Doug Landis a couple of weeks ago, um, being, a, being able to tell the story and convey the, the vision of the company with the same or at least nearing the same level of passion and accuracy, grandioseness that the founder might have goes a tremendously long 
way. And so being able to find someone who is not only a order taker, but also a storyteller um, becomes exceptionally important today, especially as you're selling new unproven products uh, into your customer base. To your second question around attrition and churn of salespeople, it has gone up. The attrition within sales attrition within startups that I talk to, uh, not just our portfolio, has gone up dramatically. People are jumping from place to place. Now, that might change um, given the current market conditions. I think that we are starting to see people start to hunker down a little bit or see a flight more towards quality and later stage um, versus betting on super early stage today and you know building out their portfolio of options. But from a management perspective, even the extension of your average tenure by you know a couple of months has a tremendous impact on the productivity of the sales organization. You know, we had one company that um, you know had average um, average tenure of the sales organization. I want to say it was between twelve and fourteen months, and we modeled that if they actually just stayed, um, you know, to eighteen months to two years. That would dramatically improve the sales efficiency of the business, meaning that for every dollar that they spend, how much net new ARR that they get in sales and uh, in sales and marketing, being able to extend the amount of time that your average sales rep stays has a tremendous impact on the efficiency and the growth of the business because you are not constantly not only filling open headcounts for net new for uh, gross new ads. But you don't have to then backfill and ramp up uh, replacement reps. Got it. I think that is true for, you know, across the board, no matter what your business is. I, I do think people may hunker down now. I mean, I if you were, you know, I've, I mean, I've talked to some sales leaders where it has just been egregious, like the, uh, the folks in trying to solve it initially by paying more. But that was sort of uns- not unsustainable. I do feel like kind of the one thing that is to the advantage of the tech companies is just mental stimulation and, you know, uh, just kind of, I, I guess you'd call it fun to, to a large degree. And I, you know, I wonder, you know, if there's, there's any, uh, anything else you might have seen on the positive side from your companies where they actually have been able to keep reps of any other sort of things you've seen that we might be able to pass on to the audience? Yeah. You know, I think that something, I mean, comp is always an option, but I think that what we have seen in our portfolio, one from a design perspective is just constant ability to up level and increase micro promotions within the organization that creates a, stair step effect that they constantly see that there is the next step for them to get that increased span of control or they get that increased um, size of account and it might be that they get increased acceleration on their um, compensation plan um, but other things that we've seen more structurally from an organization perspective is just building sales organizations where others are not. If you're building an inside sales organization, I know that we're in this world of remote, hybrid, and in-person. But you know, as we start building things out, being able to be in places and be flexible 
to be in places um, where you can build up a sales organization without as much competition around you while there still is good sales talent uh, available. But what that does require is investment from the management team, both from an enablement perspective um, and making sure that you can bring people uh, along who may not be coming from a traditional tech background. Yeah, that's brilliant. I, I, that was sort of picking up pre-pandemic. I, I, I can imagine as we bring people in and certainly, you know, when you take like an inside sales team, you know, uh, it was part of the fun was actually to go in the office, you know? And so, you know, we'll, uh, and, but, but to take that idea and not, you know, to build it in places where there's talent pools, I think is a, is a terrific insight. One thing I will say that I thought was really amazing here was we were talking specifically, you know, about your, uh, your ideal sort of cut, you know, your portfolio and where they are. Um, but a lot of the things that I heard were things that, you know, translate across, you know, a lot of companies. I, and I, I feel like today I've, um, you know, some of your vital signs, even for non-software, you know, SaaS companies, some version of that is coming, you know, becoming part of the, you know, as everyone becomes more data-driven, um, you know, some version of that is, is starting to show up in, in sort of non-tech, uh, main street type companies as well. And so, you know, it's pretty cool to, to see, to see that and to be able to listen to this and say, well, you know, like my uh, roofing, you know, the billion dollar roofing company can take a lot from, from what Dale has learned and be able to go, uh, you know, drive revenue faster and, and more. And so that's, that, that was really cool for me. I think the, the other thing I'll mention just on a takeaway is that I love to see, I'm very excited about is that this next generation of company is, you know, building their business end to end and aligned, uh, so, you know, which I think part of that goes hand in hand, the ability to support the multiple go to market strategies, um, is, um, you know, you, you really can't do unless you're aligned. And, um, you know, that was really encouraging for me. It's definitely something that, um, we're trying to work with a lot of our organizations to go do. And it sounds like if you don't, the companies coming up will be, Right. And they will be able to compete with you in a way you've not seen before. So that's pretty exciting. But, you know, so th those are big things for me. I, you know, I don't know if, you know, as we close here, is there any other uh, la famous last words you'd like to give the audience? Yeah. You know, I think that, again, being flexible and innovative with your the way that you go to market um, can create a structural advantage for you that is not easily easily replicatable by your competitors. And so just being flexible and being understanding of how your customer actually wants a buying, being able to mold your go-to-market engine to match that creates can create a competitive advantage for you in the long term um, that is sustainable. That's a perfect way to end. And I was just kicking myself under the table going, gosh, the number one thing was at the end of the day, you got to know your customer and how they want to buy. Uh, <laughs> so perfect end, man. I appreciate that. So th thank you. Thank you, Dale. This session was amazing. It's exactly what I I'd hope for, and um, our audience enjoys. Um, for for the listener, the Gardner for Sales Leaders practice has analysts with deep expertise in all the topics we discussed today. We're more than excited to connect with you um, if you're Gardner clients and go deeper in any of these topics. But until then, you know we'll just keep on learning from experts like Dale because this world keeps on changing. You heard him talk about. 
changes in just how we look at valuations in the course of, I don't know, a year or two years. Um, and that's how fast the world's changing. So we got to keep learning. The next episode of the Garner Sales Podcast will be out in a couple of weeks after this one. Um, in other words, uh, you will hear from, we will hear from each other again soon. So thank you, everyone. And again, thank you, Dale. Yep. Thank you. Please subscribe and share the episode with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. Gartner Podcasts are a production of Gartner, the world's leading research and advisory company, equipping executives across the enterprise with indispensable insight, advice, and tools to achieve their mission-critical priorities. You can learn more at Gartner.com. All content in Gartner Podcasts is owned by Gartner and cannot be repurposed or reproduced without Gartner's consent. Gartner is an impartial, independent analyst of business and technology. This content should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of any enterprise's product or services. All content provided by other speakers is expressly the views of those speakers and their organizations.